The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It was so much fun to hear about all of your announcements. Uh, the, the, the sangha that, where I'm the teacher is called Marin Sangha, and it does meet in San Rafael every Sunday evening if you're ever up there for some other reason. And you're welcome to drop by. You would find people that look sort of like you. It's a wonderful group of people, and we too have all these different kinds of activities, and our announcements take a while too because of that. So I'm happy to be here this, uh, this morning with you, and um, the, the occasion of it is that I, uh, as, as mentioned about Dancing with Life, I did this book about five years ago with the uh, encouragement of the Venerable Ajahn Sumedho and Dancing with Life. I know some of you have read and have been part of book groups down here. I've had the pleasure of talking with some of you about that. And we'll have a little bit of time for questions. If there's any questions come up about something you've read in there or your group studied, that's fine too. Dancing with Life was a, a, a book around the Samyutta Nikaya version of the Four Noble Truths in which the Four Noble Truths are presented as three insights each to be realized. So uh, an experience of 12 insights that are to be realized. So that in this version of the Four Noble Truths, one is, is using them as practice rather than as like a philosophical statement or something that tends to be the way the Four Noble Truths are tended to be perceived. The other thing that I would mention about the, the, the Four Noble Truths is that I hinted at this and actually said it at one point in the book, but I just didn't have the confidence at the time to uh, make a stronger assertion. But it would be far more accurate to say the four ennobling truths rather than the four noble truths, ennobling. That the very insight practice involved is ennobling. Therefore, if we're willing in the first noble truth to be present, for the truth of dukkha, to really stay present for that, as the Venerable Sumedho says, to stand under, it is life-changing in itself. It is ennobling when we can stay present and not run away, not suppress, deny, go into anger and so forth, that we can stay present with what's difficult, even with what's difficult about the pleasant, because that's a big part of of the grasping and, and the clinging in our, in our lives that cause this difficulty. So uh, the four ennobling truths, I'm getting, taking every opportunity I get to um, uh, expand on that since I failed to do it as much as I would like to have in the book. The only other thing to mention about Dancing with Life is that if you, you probably have a copy here, and that's the Linden Library, if you have the paperback copy, there's a, an appendix in the back called The Suffering of Ambivalence and Ambiguity. And as I went around the country, and have, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years now, it has become more and more clear to me how much in our culture there is suffering that is due to ambivalence, where we're ambivalent about something, that is, we, we mix feelings about it, run hot and cold, you know, love, hate, that kind of thing, and how much uh, there, suffering there is around ambiguity. 
And oftentimes there's not even a distinction made between ambivalence and ambiguity. And that's an important step of mindfulness right there to understand the difference. And then to see how that these are mind states themselves because in, uh, in so much of the psychological work they're treated as symptoms of some problem. But my observation has been that they are actually become independent of some other problem and they are their own mind states to be dealt with and to be understood. So with ambiguity, if, if there's no basis for understanding how to make a decision, how to, how to uh, come to peace with something, that there's so much uh, a lack of clarity as to what is the basis for a decision, this is a big source of, of difficulty in lives. And it's true for young people, it's true for middle-aged people, and it's true for older people. And as we age, the, the, the issues we have around ambiguity, where there's areas of our life where we have a lot of ambiguity, they become more pronounced because some part of us uh, want that addressed before we die. We want this cleared up in some way. It's just a natural coming into balance. And I found this particularly true with people who have a practice because you become more and more mindful and you also develop metta. And out of the feeling of loving kindness and out of the, this clarity of mind that comes from the mindfulness, this, this, is, this is off balance. This isn't right. This needs to be addressed. So it becomes almost a spontaneous feeling that arises, but it's not necessarily recognized since we don't treat these, these two uh, as, as mind states in, in their own accord many times, this ambivalence and this ambiguity. As uh, I did the teaching uh, with Dancing with Life over these last five years, there ended up being a number of study groups, uh, book club groups, uh, uh, Dharma classes, and so forth, around the Four Noble Truths, utilizing the, the Dancing with Life as the text. This was much more than I had anticipated, and I had to scramble to meet the need for that. But there ended up being hundreds and some hundreds of groups, actually, that, uh, that studied Dancing with Life. And one of the responses that I received is, okay, I understand this in terms of the Four Noble Truths and how to perceive and so forth, but then what about the practicality of daily life? What about the practicality of daily life? And um, uh, I, uh, as, as was mentioned in the introduction, I'd written a number of articles about uh, living the Dharma in daily life, and my Sunday evening group uh, it stresses that. So for, to give you an example, Last Sunday evening, the, the Dharma talk that I gave was called The Downside of the Upside. <laughs> and it was an exploration of how we can have clinging and have all sorts of secondary issues come up around something fortunate that uh, occurs with us. And of course, part of that, then I did the upside of the downside. But that's an example of the uh, immediacy that I... Uh, uh, I'm interested in uh, sharing in terms of the Dharma, the immediacy of daily life. And out of that uh, 
adventure over a number of years, I ended up uh, creating the new book, which is Emotional Chaos to Clarity. And it is a book that uh, basically takes us through the chaos of our emotions that come from the truth of the first noble truth and the truth of the second noble truth that these two together, that there is external chaos, and we would call that the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, in our daily lives, that all of these external circumstances happen to us, everything from having a a difficult person at work, to having uh, struggles at work, to having struggles in our personal life, to having health issues, to having our, our country. Uh, do something that makes us uh, uh, uncomfortable or ashamed or distressed, to uh, having troubles with our friends or within our community, or the various kinds of health issues that we can have, all of these uh, external sources of chaos that come about due to conditions. So lots of emotional chaos that's part of life, even around things that are positive, once again. We can have a lot of emotional chaos because something fortunate has happened and then we get uh, possessive of it or we want more of it or we feel threatened of losing it or we feel uncomfortable that we don't deserve it or we find ourselves being envied or there's jealousy or uh, maybe we weren't so skillful in some ways in the way we acquired it or we feel compromised. Lots of emotional chaos that comes from uh, conditions that created what would appear to be positive results in our life or positive circumstances. So out of this emotional chaos, we are faced with uh, what happens to us. Why do we get so caught in circumstances like this? And it is the second noble truth, the truth that there is a cause of dukkha, that where we see our own internal participation in the chaos, our internal participation. We want things the way we want them. We want things the way we want them now. We want things to, in the future to be the way we want them through all the sense gates. And of course, and most sadly in some ways, we want the past to be the way we wanted it to be. And so we have this clinging to all of these feelings about the past. So much chaos around that. And uh, this uh, beautiful teachings of the, of the Buddha in terms of letting loose of clinging, so vital in terms of letting loose of the past and really being able to live here and now, to end suffering here and now in this very moment. As we see the role that we play through the sense gates, we also see our becoming, how we want we want to become something, and in our wanting to become, whether it's a good mom or a respected person at work or a, a good dad or a good friend or a good meditation student, this, this, uh, this wanting to become, this is the second uh, tanha, the second thirst that's described in the second noble truth. And this, this wanting to become creates so much chaos, you know. It's not that the aspirations are, are unwholesome necessarily, but our relationship, our lack of mindfulness, our lack of intention around our wanting to become something is uh, such a 
source of the chaos and creates uh, so little clarity it distorts. We, we lack sampajana, this clear comprehension that the, that the Buddha talks about as being necessary for mindfulness. Okay? That's one of the four conditions in the Satipatthana Sutta for practicing mindfulness is this developing of clear comprehension. And when we've got a lot of emotional chaos, not so much clarity. Not so much clarity. And there is suffering. And then the third kind of tanha that's described in the Second Noble Truth, this not wanting to be, not wanting to be in the dentist chair at this moment, not wanting to be dealing with this cancer or our concern about our, our teenager. I was just working with someone yesterday about that. So not wanting to uh, be a mom having to deal with this problem with their, with their son at this particular time. Lots of kinds of turmoil, lots of chaos, emotional chaos, that uh, inhibits clear thinking for decision-making, that, uh, that inhibits the access to intuition, which is such an important part of our practice. Mindfulness, the development of insight, uh, the, the vipassana, vipassana, the recognition of, uh, uh, that is the insight recognition is an intuitive recognition. It's not an inductive, deductive kind of, oh, it's because of this and this and this or uh, uh, so forth, but rather it's a, ah, oh, I get it. It's like a flash of lightning insight. It's just a, I get it in my total being. And this, uh, this kind of insight uh, is, is uh, greatly uh, inhibited, less likely to occur when there is this uh, not wanting to be in some situation. And therefore, insight that is of the regular daily life, that, oh, this is the way I should respond to my son or to my daughter. This is what I should do about my elderly parent. This is what I should do about this work situation. Where the heart is open, the mind is clear. The emotional chaos, so hard to get through. And particularly when not recognized. Oh, there's not clarity here. I'm identified with, I have taken birth, as we say in this practice. I've taken birth in the turmoil here. I am this emotional chaos. This emotional chaos is mine. Completely opposite of the teachings. It's neither me nor mine. But to see that in daily life, in the speed of daily life with all of the different stimulation, difficult really difficult. Uh, all of this conflicting responsibility we have as lay people, we, uh, we are involved in meeting a lot of, of uh, regular daily life goals, a lot of things that we, quote, want. So how to have uh, skillful wanting without collapsing into uh, the uh, grasping of wanting? So we have a preference, but how to not get caught in preference? How to not uh, uh, get caught up in our idealization of what our preference is? How to not get uh, uh, swept away by the belief that if I just have this, if just this thing happens, then I'm going to be happy forever. If we stop and look at that, we know that's not true, but we will act for days, weeks, months, years, is with a fixation on a particular situation in daily life, 
which is this samsaric circle of suffering, not just for ourselves, but so often for others. That was the condition that I wanted to address in terms of emotional chaos to clarity, that in daily life, we don't have to be uh, so Buddhist, we can more act like a Buddha, and in doing that, we can move from this emotional chaos without ever having to go back and say, oh yes, this is the first and the second noble truth, and da-da-da. We don't have to do all that in daily life. We don't have time. We've got to uh, answer the phone, uh, write the email, whatever it is that we have to do. But we can start to incorporate this wisdom in our everyday language. And that's what I attempted to do with emotional chaos to clarity and what I've now been teaching people around the country for some period of time. I actually started teaching this way before I I wrote the book to see what worked and didn't work. I wanted to be sure about that. One of the things then that we, we see as we start to look at this is that in our daily life it is the existence, the truth of the, uh, the very strong condition that comes out in the Buddha's teachings of the four foundations. The, and the second foundation being Vedna, the rising of pleasant and unpleasant. So for most of you, I know you've got a lot of experience that are here, just to quickly remind you. The first of the four foundations is awareness of the body. Awareness of the body in the body, that is the felt sense of experience, not the old coconut's view and opinion about it. So easy, even if we're experienced practitioners, to forget that. We get uh, to looking at things in terms of view and opinion. And then we fall into judgment and comparing mind. And comparing mind, the Buddha said, various places in the, in the suttas, not comparing, no comparing mind. Not better than, worse than, or even the same as. Stay away from comparing mind. So staying away from judging mind, comparing mind, and even fixing it mind, so that we learn not to look at everything for, oh, how do we fix it? But rather, oh, I want to feel it. This is knowing the moment in the moment. This moment's like this. Uh, uh, Feeling calm in a meditation is like this. Being frustrated in uh, traffic is like this. This willingness to be with, the actual felt sense of it, So the first of these four foundations of mindfulness, the the awareness of the body and the body. The second, the awareness of feeling tone, this vedna, this slight or strong flavoring of pleasant and unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And in the Buddhist teaching, it is this vedna, this flavoring of pleasant or unpleasant, that so captures the mind. And the chain of dependent origination, which you've probably heard, most of you have heard taught at some point or another. This is the key link. It's right there where we fail to perceive correctly. It's right there that we begin what will be a whole uh, uh, excursion into emotional chaos. Just around that pleasant or unpleasant. What we discover is that if it's pleasant, we're like a puppet on two strings. And if it's pleasant, oh, I want that. So we dance that way. Oh, I've got this. I don't want anyone to take it from me. 
Oh, I want more of it. This isn't enough. I want more. Just dancing on the pleasant. Or if it's unpleasant, if it's the string of unpleasant, then I want to avoid that or I've got to get out of this unpleasantness or uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to be associated in any way with the unpleasant. And thus, this string, we're like this puppet dancing, puppet dancing. So enslaving this, so, so uh, creating so much emotional chaos. Rather than saying, this condition is like this, pleasant's like this, pleasant's like this. The string is there. We feel the string pulling us. Unpleasant's like this. Feel the string pulling us. You know, anger, frustration, uncertainty, fear, loneliness, uh, rewards, being recognized, uh, receiving things, getting to give, getting to be the hero. Oh, it feels like this. We, instead of becoming reactive to this, thus dancing with, uh, like a puppet on those strings of pleasant and unpleasant, and therefore uh, if, uh, being subject to the chaos that comes from that kind of dance, we have a choice because our mindfulness allows us to choose a responsive relationship rather than a reactive relationship. And um, with the emotional chaos, the clarity, what I'm most describing is how to move from that reactive to responsive mind state. To move from a reactive mind state that is the, the, the uh, underlying uh, condition that leads to this circle of suffering, this samsaric circle, to a responsive mind state where we have choice, choice. I use this word choice deliberately in teaching this as opposed to freedom, which I will sometimes supplement the choice with this word freedom, or the word liberation. In the retreat environment, I tend to use the word freedom and liberation. You can think of freedom as freedom in this moment, of of freedom from greed, freedom from aversion, freedom from delusion. That in this moment we're free. And then liberation, that the, or, or nibbana, or enlightenment, or whatever word you like, as the uprooting of the very seeds where there would no longer be the, uh, the possibility of this happening. But for daily life, for just living the Dharma as we are, not thinking, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just serious practice right now. No, in my daily life, I have this aspiration of choice. I wish to have choice as to how I respond to any situation in my life. To have choice as to how I respond to any and every situation. This is an aspiration. The two tools that I teach to help this are the tools of mindfulness, which all of you probably know quite well and have heard many talks on, and the tool of intention. That these two together allow us to move from a reactive relationship to our experience to a responsive relationship to our experience. Moment to moment, moment to moment. We're just living, but we're living with, with 
this as an aspiration in this moment, in this moment. As you'll see, that becomes quite important. Read you a little poem. This is um, from a poet named Tony Hoagland, and it's from his book, What Narcissism Means to Me. <laughs> the title is Phone Call. Maybe I overdid it when I called my father an enemy of humanity. <laughs> That might have been a little strongly put, a slight over-exaggeration, an immoderate description of the person who at that moment, 2,000 miles away, holding the telephone receiver six inches from his ear, must have regretted paying for my therapy. (laughs) What I meant was that my father was an enemy of my humanity, And what I meant behind that was that my father was split into two people. One of them living deep inside of me, like a bad king or an incurable disease, blighting my crops, striking down my herds, poisoning my wells. The other, standing in another time zone, in a kitchen in Wyoming, with bad knees and white hair, sprouting from his ears. I don't want to scream forever. I don't want to live without proportion like some kind of infection from the past. So I have to remember the second father, the one whose TV dinner is getting cold while he holds the phone in his left hand and stares blankly out the window. Where just now, the sun is going down and the last fingertips of sunlight are withdrawing from the hills they once touched like a child. We all have a committee inside us, right? You've recognized that by now. I don't see anyone here so young that you haven't had the time to recognize that there's a whole committee of me's in there. And we've gotten these members for a series of reasons. But there they are. And they each have their own view. And we're never sure which version of us will show up, which version will be enlisted by a particular condition. And oftentimes, these various members of the committee uh, create their own little cabals. And so three different aspects of us act in some way that really creates a lot of chaos for ourselves or another. Right? We've all known this. In psychotherapy, you might say, okay, I'm going to find all the storylines that, uh, that created these, these various members of the committee, and I'm going to work with all those storylines to liberate them. Very useful, very useful, at least to eliminate a few that may be the most difficult to, get a, to change the story, alter the story in some way. But in, in Buddhist practice, that's not what we do. We take the phenomena that ordinarily is seen in story And we're less interested in the story and we're more interested in the phenomena of anger, of loneliness, of excitement, of love, of caring, of fear, of uncertainty, of wanting. 
We're interested in that phenomena and how that phenomena is affecting us. So my anger, my uncertainty is the same as your anger and your uncertainty and your anger and your uncertainty. That it is a phenomena of the mind. And these strong emotions, these strong emotions, when there is a lack of mindfulness and a lack of intention in relation to them, they lead to suffering. Suffering which I'm calling for this purpose uh, emotional chaos rather than getting us bogged down in um, any kind of classic definitions. But no, the exact experience that we have, ouch, ouch, right now, ouch, free of, uh, of a lot of theory behind it in terms of this immediate application of it. And so we, so we learn. We learn that we can, through our mindfulness, recognize what's true right now and be interested in it as the, the phenomena of it and how it's affecting our minds and hearts right now. Right now. And that's the first step of choice is, oh, look at this. Look at this. Look at this. The second step that will give us choice is intention. Having an, an intentional relationship with life. Because that's part of having a responsive relationship to life is intentional. Intentional. In the fourth noble truth, that's why I, dancing with life had to proceed, I guess, emotional chaos because it really helps to know these four noble truths. In the fourth noble truth, the Buddha gives us a path for ending suffering, for ending dukkha. And that path begins with wise understanding. Wise understanding is the beginning and the end of the path. Uh, we have enough understanding to begin and to keep going, but then our understanding grows and develops in its dimensionality in all these different ways, both uh, in terms of the through line of it and also in the 360 of it in our daily life. really want to make sure you hear that, the 360 in our daily life. Wise understanding that we have on the cushion that doesn't show up in daily life, I suggest we should be suspicious of that understanding. Be very suspicious of it. The split between our, our formal practice in our lives, something's missing there. Something needs addressing from my view. So we, the path starts with wise understanding, and then it's followed by wise intention, sama samkapa. Wise intention is what takes our understanding. Mindfulness helps us have that understanding, but intention is what brings it into our daily life. So is there anyone in this room who doesn't have a number of situations where you have an understanding as to what you should do or shouldn't do, and yet you don't do it? In terms of your health, relating to your difficult sibling, uh, your, your relationship, we all have wise understanding that doesn't show up. Why is that? Why is that? I've wondered that a lot in terms of myself. have my own little list. Not so little, maybe. It is this lack of intention in the moment. And my view, this would not be everybody's view, but my view of the Buddhist teaching of wise intention is that it's here and now in this very moment. 
here and now. Because the Buddha says we only have this moment. There's not a Philip or a Jane or a Joseph or, or Jose that goes on and on and on. But there's this moment and this moment. So therefore, the only time intention can be applied is here and now. This is the here and now of the Dharma. So the ending suffering, we have a goal of liberation, but we also have a, this, this intention in this moment to not cause suffering to ourselves or another. Very inspiring to see the teachings this way, at least for me. And therefore, mindfulness and intention allow us to be aware of what's true now, to have this felt sense of it, as I was saying, whether it's the, the pleasant to unpleasant, whether it's the mind state, the thinking, whatever, we, we feel it, we know it's there, and we have an intention as to how to relate to it. Intentions are different in this schematic from goals. Different than goals, different from goals. Goals are out there in the future, maybe five minutes away, five years away, five lifetimes away. They're always in the future. Otherwise, they wouldn't be goals because they'd already be here. So they're goals. Goals can be wholesome or unwholesome. Unwholesome goals, we've all chosen those, and we know how that turns out. But even with wholesome goals, if we're not skillful moment to moment, we can end up causing a lot of suffering for ourselves and others. Even if it's a wonderful aspiration, a wonderful goal, but this, this, the immediacy of our means, moment to moment, in speech, words, actions, even thoughts. So this becomes uh, the cultivation, the cultivation of intention. For the Buddha, in the teachings of Four Noble Truth, he would often speak of the, the intention of loving kindness, the intention of non-harming, and then the intention of renunciation. And... Uh, when I first read that, I was like, what? Because loving kindness, I get that. Oh, yes, that's, that seems very Buddhist, right? Non-harming, oh, very Buddhist. But renunciation, now why does that fit on the same hierarchy, the same level, the exalted state with these two? And uh, ordinarily, if I had more time, we would discuss this together, but I don't have the time for that this morning, so I'm just going to tell you my uh, my conclusion around this and my insight, as it were, which is that we can have the, the, the goal of non-harming, we can have the goal of loving kindness, and if we lack the power of renunciation, those very wholesome goals will be swept away, overwhelmed by wanting mind or by aversive mind. So we need to develop this muscle of renunciation in small ways and large, starting with small ways to a large degree, but that becomes more and more part of our life that we can have a very strong emotion arise in us and have the renunciation that says, I won't go down that road. My mindfulness knows where it, it, that road leads, but, uh, but my intention, which has a, this intention of renunciation, says, and I won't go there. Thus, I have choice. Thus, I don't, when my difficult sibling is on the phone accusing me once again of X or Y, and I don't go there in a reactive mind state. I don't go there. I have the choice because I've, I'm mindful of what's going on, and I have this clarity of intention. Right now, right this moment, I don't say something hurtful back. I don't withdraw. My intention is to care. 
My intention is to care. And that's where I live because I have the choice. And that is the clarity that mindfulness and intention bring together. It is so empowering. It is so empowering. If you live a life that's mindful and has developed intention in it, you then, through your patience and persistence, these paramis of patience and persistence, if you develop those, you become a person that is uh, formidable. You get knocked off, you just start over. Get knocked off, start over. Things aren't going the way you want, so what? So what? You, you're not dependent on conditions anymore. Your, your ground of being, your sense of, of worth, what you're about is your intention. G- with goals, different means are used to re- reach our goals. But the same set of intentions are always there, independent of the goal. Because intention is the way we intend to meet all conditions. Goals towards those conditions, then we have to choose what are the skillful means. But once we develop a set of intentions, and we, if that's slow, and again, this is a much longer process to describe that. You'll have to read about it. But uh, it, once we develop this intentional living in this way, we become uh, 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 people of choice. And it feels really good. To some degree, many of you have already done this, maybe without thinking about it, through your mindfulness and through all of your practice. But in my experience, for each of us, there's uh, yet more opportunity if we have this clarity as to what our aspiration is, this one of, of clarity and to, of not causing harm to ourselves or other uh, in the daily conditions of life. So with that, uh, I, I, just to go through this, I realized I'm not going to have time to, uh, to take questions here now because I want to recognize your, your uh, uh, habit of the, the way you end on a certain time. So I'd like us to just close our eyes for a moment and we'll dedicate the merit. Then I'll say bye. <laughs> So coming into the body, particularly focusing on that area below the belly button, about an inch and a half, but just feeling what's true in the body now. As you've heard these teachings, does the intuitive body have something that is to be known, to be felt? Move your attention to the heart area. Not the physical heart, but that larger area. What's true in the heart? What does the heart know that is worthy of your attention? Shifting attention to the head center where all the views and opinions and commentators exist. What's true in the head center? What is worthy of attention in the head center?
as we learn as best we're able to move from being caught in the emotional chaos that life brings to having a clarity about that chaos, not to get rid of the emotional chaos, but to have a clarity around it that gives us choice. May this benefit our loved ones. May this benefit our friends. May this benefit everyone with whom we come in contact. Any merit that has come from our practice this day, we together and individually offer this merit to all beings without preference, without discrimination. May all beings, those we like, those we disapprove of, those we know that we don't know, near and far, may all beings benefit from the merit of our practice. May they too have clarity and therefore choice in their life patterns in such a way that they move to the end of suffering. Thank you so much for your time and attention today. It's very nice to be here with you. Uh, uh, you know, I think Gil is such a terrific teacher, and uh, we're, we're dear friends, and so it's a, it's a joy to be here and, uh, with you and your sangha. And I bow to your practice.